Well, I never thought I'd be doing this. That was the phrase that entered my head as I stood in a circle of Indian men in the middle of India dancing some Indian dance. And I never, ever thought I would be doing that. I had gone years and years ago to India on a a trip where I was teaching the Word of God to uh, native local pastors in south-central India, and we'd been at this conference all week, and I'd been uh, preaching with a bunch of other teachers as well, but the word, uh, the word that was preached had to get translated twice because uh, no one really spoke English there. So I would say it, and then it would get translated once, and then it would get translated again because they didn't really know, uh, you know, what language to preach. And the second translation was always like uh, uh, changed, and it was a courtesy because there were so many different people who spoke so many different languages at this conference. And so I, I would be teaching, and sort of at the end of the conference, they had this worship time before the last session, and uh, I can just guarantee you that uh, it looks very different than this right here. And, uh, and so these men, these Indian pastors got up, and they came down to the front, and they moved chairs, and they just started doing what looked, to me looked like a rugby scrum. And uh, they got in a circle, and they were just yelling and dancing, and then they sort of, we were standing off to the side, and they sort of looked at me, kind of like, come on. And I'm like, oh, no, no, it's okay, really. And so they came out, they grabbed me, pulled me into the circle, and here I am having no idea what to do, kicking my legs, dancing, sweating profusely uh, in, in southern India. And I just thought, I have nothing in common with the men in this circle with me right now. There's absolutely nothing in common with them. And yet here I am. They are so different from me. I can't communicate. The only way I could communicate was uh, to smile and give a thumbs up occasionally. And, and the only way I could communicate. But what we shared in common was Jesus. And Christ transcended barriers of difference. Things that were very different, Christ transcended those barriers. You see, what I want you to know today is that there are many people in the world around us, and we are very different than many people in this world. But I need you to know today that God works in different people in different ways. I just need you to understand that from the text today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 16, and what we're going to see in this section, verse really verse 11 to verse 40 of Acts chapter 16, what we're going to see here is we're going to meet three people. We're going to meet a business owner, we're going to meet a slave girl, And we're going to meet a jailer. And in these three people, as we're introduced to those, I want you to see that God works in different people and God works in different ways. Now, we've been in the book of Acts for a long time, as I remind you all the time. I put up this slide here that basically is an outline of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And if you look on the screen here at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Oh, did it die? There are technical difficulties. All right. Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, I will just remind you that Acts chapter 1, verse 8 uh, talks simply about an outline. Jesus says, you know, here's where you're going to go. You're going to go to Judea. You're going to go to, to uh, Jerusalem rather than Judea and Samaria. That's the one. Thanks, Caleb. And then you're going to go to the ends of the earth. And those are really a, a, a rudimentary outline for the book of Acts. And we're in this ends of the earth section of the book of Acts where the gospel is going to all throughout the Roman Empire, specifically on Paul. Now, 
most of, the, most of your Bibles have some maps in the back of them, and, and uh, you might in a Bible have a map that shows the missionary journeys of Paul. We would be on Paul's second missionary journey here, and if you were to throw a map up here of, this is kind of the modern day region of Turkey, on Paul's first missionary journey, he kind of focused on the area inside the yellow circle. He was planting and establishing churches. On his second missionary journey, he and Silas went back there revisiting those churches. And we talked about uh, how he came to, uh, to Troas and had a missionary uh, a vision of the Macedonian man. And so if you flip to the next slide, you'll see kind of focused in on this area of, uh, of northern Greece. Paul set out from Troas on your right there, hopped on a boat, and he landed in, uh, in Macedonia or northern Greece today. And this is where he went to the Macedonian man. They, they landed there and, uh, and they began to travel in Macedonia. And the first city they're going to come to is a city called Philippi. And we're going to see that God works in different people in different ways. We're going to see that today. Now, you need to understand before we dig into this that God doesn't just work in different people. God also works in, in different ways. But you need to understand that God works in different people because God is different. We don't often think about God as a God who's different. We often think about God as a God who's the same. We like to focus on how God is the same. He's our brother. God became one of us in Jesus. And these things are all true. Jesus is our brother, we talk about. But we need to remember that God is different than us as well. He's holy. We, we're sinful. He's separate from us. He's not stuck in our mess. You know, uh, there's a, the philosophy of this age would make God one of us. Our culture, uh, new age thinking and philosophy would just say, oh no, God is one of us. He's just here like us. God's all around us and, and he's, he's just one of us. And the problem with forgetting that God is different is that if God is just one of us, then he's stuck in the same mess as we are. Imagine two people stuck in quicksand, slowly sinking together. Uh, which one of them is going to help the other one out? Don't they need someone outside, someone who's different, not in their circumstances? This is what makes the gospel so beautiful. God is different than we are. The other problem with thinking that God is just like us and just one of us and not remembering that he's different or outside of our circumstances is that really if God is just the same as we are, then who has the ability to establish authority? If God's just like us, how can he establish authority? It's like uh, kids on the playground where one kid starts taking charge of the kickball game and says, hey, you know, you do this and you do that. And, and the other kid goes, hey, who died and made you king? right? I mean, it's sort of that idea. We could turn to God and say, well, God, you're just one of us. Who made you king? But God is different. He's separate. And, the, and this is why the incarnation is so amazing. This simple idea that God, who is separate and different from us, would join us, would come to us, would cross the barrier when we needed him. That to us who were in quicksand, for him to outside of us join us to get us out. The incarnation is different. Jesus is truly remarkable. He came to us and we rejected him. This is really important to remember, just as a precursor note as we get, get ready to dive into this sermon. God works in people who are different because God is different. And really this concept is highlighted in the Trinity. This classic Christian doctrine that God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Three 
persons in one being. And, and what the Trinity highlights for us is infinite diversity and perfect unity. Uh, uh, we talk about God being different and God working in people who are different. This all comes out of God's difference even amidst his unity in the Trinity. Let that just blow your mind for a while <laughs> because it's really sometimes hard to grasp. God is different. This brings us to our text, and we can jump in here. If God is different now, the first thing we need to understand is God works in different people. God works in different people. We see this in the text today. Diversity is such a buzzword in our culture. It, it's such a buzzword. Everyone loves to talk about diversity, and mostly by diversity, we sort of mean celebrating our differences at best. At worst, we mean, hey, we just tolerate each other, put up with each other at the worst. But in a culture that is immersed in diversity training, probably many of you have gone through diversity training at work, where we talk about diversity, 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 it's important to remember that God is the one who created diversity, and God is the one who it was his great desire to reach all peoples of the world. Way back to Genesis 12. Go back to the beginning and we see in Abraham that while God chose Abraham in a special relationship with his descendants, he says, through you the whole world will be blessed. All peoples. Diversity is God's idea. God works in people who are different. God is the inventor of diversity. And God values people who are different and works in their lives because God works in different kinds of people. This takes us to our text today, and, and when we look here at the text, the first thing you're going to see, a little bit before the part that Mandy read for us, we're going to see uh, that right after Paul had a vision of the Macedonian man, in, in Acts chapter 16, verse 11, we see that Paul begins this journey from northern, uh, northwest Turkey across the sea to Macedonia, and it says, from Troas, we, which would be in that northwest Turkey region, we set out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, which is an island. And then the next day we went on to Neapolis, which is really the port city for the major city of the region, Philippi. Uh, Neapolis was about 10 miles from Philippi. So what Paul does is Paul sets out. He has the Macedonian vision. He concludes God's calling us to the Macedonians. Let's go. He lands in the port city. He goes first to the major city of the region, the closest one to Philippi. He heads down to the river by Philippi because Paul expected there to be a place of prayer there. He wants to find some Jews and talk to them. He figures, I have the most in common with Jewish people. I'm a Jew, and so I'm going to find some Jews in the region, and I'm going to begin this dialogue about Jesus. So he goes down to the river, and he finds some women there. And in Acts 16, verse 14, we read this. One of those listening to Paul as he, as he talked, as he spoke, one of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. So this is interesting. Here we meet Lydia, and she's the first person we meet as we talk about God works in people who are different. There's some interesting things about Lydia that we get that we may not pick up right away in thinking about how God, who God chooses to work in, but Lydia is a very different kind of person than Paul has worked with before. First of all, we know that Lydia was a businesswoman. She was dealing in purple cloth, which was an expensive fabric. Um, it was known to be from her home city of Thyatira, and she was working in this trade. So we know she was a businesswoman. She was most likely wealthy. 
She was probably well off because she was a business owner and because she was dealing in expensive materials. She was probably a very wealthy woman or at least a wealthy woman in the upside of society. Uh, she was a Gentile. She was from the region of Thyatira. That's the, sort of the region that Paul had just left over in Turkey. She was a God-fearer or a worshiper of God. So th- here's how this worked. If you were just, it, to be a Jew, you had to be a descendant of Abraham. Through, you had to have the right lineage, the right parenthood. Your father had to be a Jew. Your mother had to be a Jew. If there was some intermarrying there, uh, some things could happen where you could still be considered a Jew. But for the most part, uh, a Jew had to be genetically a Jew. What would you do if you were not genetically a Jew, but you looked at the Jews and go, they got it right. This God they have is the right God. Like my, the people around me, this pagan stuff they're worshiping, that's for the birds. You know, th- these Jews have it right. What do you do? Well, the Jews had a special name for those people. They called them God-fearers or God-worshippers. They, they feared the one true God. In other words, they said, we buy the whole thing, but we're not genetic Jews. We learned about Lydia that this is who she was. She understood, probably understood the word of God. Probably she had studied about the one true God. She had a background in Judaism, even though she wasn't a Jew. So we learned that she, here she is. She's a businesswoman. She's a Gentile. She's probably wealthy. She's uh, immersed herself in the study of the Jewish God. And she had a household. That's the last thing we learned about her. It's really important to understand first century houses were not just nuclear families, you know? Like, I'll go home and, you know, we, we think about the Grimes family here and Caleb over there. And, uh, you know, they're a nuclear family, right? M- you know, m- mother, father, husband, wife, two kids. That's a nuclear family. In the first century world, family didn't work like that. You had a whole extended family that lived in your house, you know? This was grandkids and cousins living together. Uh, and what's more in the first century, a household sort of took on the function of a business oftentimes. There would be a household trade. And so uh, a, a business owner like Lydia would probably have workers that sort of got pulled into the family. She'd have slaves that were part of the family. The family is a big deal. And this is Lydia. Lydia is probably either... Uh, not married or her husband has died, most likely by this point. And this is who Lydia is. She's got this business. She's interested in God. She's a Gentile. And here Paul is speaking to her and she responds. Now, I want you to meet someone else now as we work through this text. I want to try to work through this text a couple different times so that you can see how God works in different people. And so the second person we meet here is, uh, is a slave girl. We meet the slave girl because God works in different kinds of people. The slave girl we meet in verse 16 of the text. Lydia responds to Paul's message and becomes a believer in Jesus. She invites Paul and Silas and Timothy into her house, says, hey, you can stay here. Come on in. And so, she's, and so they stay with her. And uh, Paul continued to go down to this river, to this place of prayer. In verse 16, he, uh, Luke says once, When we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by by fortune telling. So here we meet a different person, and we meet a slave girl. And this girl couldn't be more different than Lydia. She is a slave. Now, this is not necessarily like what we think of in American slavery. Uh, It's not necessarily that level of... of, uh, pain and hardship and oppression. 
Nevertheless, it's not a good thing. And so she's a slave girl. Now, she was also possessed by a demon, we note, that helped her predict the future. So she had a demon inside of her who would help her predict the future, and her owners would make money selling her services out. Now, just a side note real quick about this. Uh, some people would say, wow, a demon can predict the future. Satan's a really powerful guy. Is he, is he like God? Is he all-knowing? Does he know everything? And the answer, of course, to that is no. Satan is limited. He does not know the future. He does not all-knowing like God is. He's limited. But Satan's really smart. And Satan can look at circumstances and go, I can predict what's going to happen. And I got a good guess as to what's going to happen there. And, you know, because he's really smart, a lot of times he gets it right. Doesn't always get it right, but a lot of the times he does. And so he can look at that and he can work in this. This is important for us to remember just simply about that, that sometimes we think of God as good and Satan as evil and they're dueling. And we must remember that God is the infinite, powerful God. Satan is simply one of his created beings. She's taking care. Uh, so this slave girl, she's possessed by this demon. She's being taken advantage of. So Lydia was a wealthy woman. This girl is at the opposite end of the spectrum, a poor slave. Now the story continues. Look at verse 17. In verse 17, Luke says, The girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting. <laughs> you can just imagine this scene, right? These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Uh, so, you, you know, the story continues here. She's right. Uh, she's yelling out, hey, everyone, these men are servants of God. You know, what Satan's plan in this, I don't know. But, uh, but she's right. And this thing, same thing happened to Jesus. When Jesus would encounter demons, evil spirits, they would often tell everyone who he was. Sometimes Jesus didn't want them to do that. But she keeps this up. She keeps day after day yelling, these men are servants of God. They're telling you how to be saved. And you know what? Paul just gets downright annoyed. <laughs> he just, I mean, one day he just turns around and like, all right, I'm done with you. Stop it. And he just casts out the spirit. You know, this is really interesting because Paul, <laughs> this gets Paul and Silas in deep trouble because the slave owners, they're, they're like, What? Our income is gone. Like, we, we got, you just took away our business. What are you doing? And they get really torqued. And so they grab Paul and Silas. They drag him into the town squares. They make a bunch of false accusations. They stir up a mob. And Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown in jail. And so we meet the next person. Because God works in different people. He worked in Lydia, a, a business owner a Gentile business owner. Now he, he works in a slave girl, the opposite spectrum. And now we're going to see the last person, this Philippian jailer. Paul and Silas get thrown in jail, and we meet this jailer in verse 23. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. So upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. So the inner cell was reserved for like serious things. I mean, this is like the uber secure area of, of the jail, you know. And so he, the Philippian jailer, is taking this seriously. 
Here we meet this Philippian jailer. God has already worked in Lydia. He's worked in a slave owner. And now we're going to see he works in this Philippian jailer. The, a jailer is a position of responsibility. So sometimes we might think, is this a lowly position? Or is this a high position? Um, this is not a lowly position. This jailer was probably a Roman soldier who oftentimes in uh, Roman history, as we look back, soldiers upon retirement were given a post of responsibility like that of a jailer. He was probably given some land with which he could garner an income, and he was given a job to watch the jail. And so it's a position of responsibility. Um, there are great responsibility and consequences. Escaped prisoners for a jailer meant his own death. If he let a, a, if he let a prisoner escape, uh, he would be killed for that. And so there's so, sort of an incentive here to do your job really well. And so uh, he had probably uh, been listening to this slave girl announce salvation. And uh, you need to understand that a, a, a jailer in, in Paul's day operate, operated under a culture of shame, not a culture of guilt. Let me explain what I mean by this, because this is really important. Our culture, we, we talk about things in, in, in terms of guilt. Are you guilty or not guilty? Um, so, uh, you know, when we talk about salvation in terms, we say, you know, I am guilty of sinning against the Most High God. So the beautiful thing of the gospel is that I had to pay for my own guilt, my own sin. And uh, that meant death, eternal separation from God. But the gospel is that God said, you know what, you're guilty, but I'll take your punishment. So God came in Jesus, one of us. He died for our sins, took our punishment upon himself, so we can be saved. He rose from the dead, poured out his spirit amongst us. This is the gospel. Now, in many cultures of the world, they don't even understand this concept of guilt. That doesn't even make sense to them. They don't run on guilt. Uh, and so in many cultures of our world, we have to talk about the gospel in terms of another thing that's also true, shame. Most people wouldn't care about whether they were guilty or not, but they would care whether they caused shame to themselves or to their family around them. Shame is the ultimate sin, if it were to speak. And so you would say, well, you're guilty. They'd go, I don't care. Who cares if I'm guilty? Uh, but you'd say, you have brought shame and you could destroy someone's world. So the Philippian jailer is resulting, is working in a culture of shame. This will become very important as the story continues. You see, if Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman, if the, if the slave girl is at the opposite end of the economic spectrum, now we're interested to a man who's at a completely different place. He's a Roman soldier, a different strata of society. God works in people who are different than you. As much as the message of the diversity gets jammed down our throat, and as sometimes as much as this message is misapplied, the truth is God loves all kinds of people even people that you and I might not like. This is really important for us to grasp because we tend to gravitate towards people who are just like us. We tend to avoid people who we don't really care for. I mean, God is working in people who annoy you. Did you know that? God is working in people who irk you. God is working in people's lives who embarrass you. God is working for in, in the lives of people that are so different from you are that you can't even comprehend what their life looks like. God is even working in the lives of St. Louis Cardinals fans, as different as that culture might be. 
God is working in people who are different. He's working in people, the lives of people at work who are beneath you. He's working in the lives of people who are above you. He works in people of, di- of different genders and races. He works in, in different people of different cultures. He works in people who are so different from us that we can't even understand them. And in Acts, Paul gets involved in all of their lives because God is working in different people. The second thing I want to talk to you about today is as we look at these three people again, I also want you to go back now and see that it's not that he's just working in different people. He's also working in different ways. God is working in different people and in different ways. Look at the means by which God does this. You see, sometimes you and I get locked into the same way of doing things, don't we? We're just sort of creatures of habit. We're just like, this is what I do every day, you know? Every day. This is what I do. This is how I do it. Uh, my dad, for years, bought Nissan cars. Like, why, Dad? I like Nissans, he would tell me, you know? <laughs> it's like, he knew the same salesman. He'd go every couple of years and get a brand new Nissan car. In fact, I drove Nissans for a very, very long time because I seemed to get the hand-me-down car, you know, at a really good price. And so, you know, every, why, Dad, do you do that? Why do you buy Nissans? Well, because that's just what I do. Aren't we all like that to a certain degree? We just do certain things and we like the same. Paul was the same way. He had this pattern. He'd walk into a town. He'd look for Jews at the synagogue usually. He'd talk to him about Jesus. He was in a pattern. So when we look at Lydia again, let's go back for just a second and look at these three people again. Look how God's working in different ways. Paul's pattern was to go to the synagogue to talk about to Jews. He would meet, a synagogue was sort of a local place of worship, a local gathering for Jews, and he would go into the synagogue. Philippi doesn't have a synagogue. Well, now Paul's all thrown off here. What am I going to do? He goes, okay, well, I'll do the next thing. Where, where do the Jews gather? Well, as was common, if you didn't have enough Jewish males in a town to start a synagogue, it took 10. It'd have 10 Jewish males in a town to start a synagogue. If you didn't have 10 males... Whoever was there, whoever Jews, could establish sort of a place of worship. And it was usually down by the river. Not like Chris Farley down in a van down by the river. But, you know, nonetheless, like only four of you get that reference. Wow, I'm old. Um, so anyway, but so down in, in the river there was a place. And Paul all of a sudden is changing the way he's doing stuff. It's like, well, I got to go find people. So I'm going down to a place of worship at the river. What's fascinating here is God's working in a different way. Now watch how God works in Lydia's heart, and then we're going to compare how God works in Lydia's heart with how he works in the, in the slave girl's heart, and particularly in the jailer's heart. Here's how God works in, the, in Lydia's heart. When Paul talks to Lydia, the Bible says that God moved in her heart to respond to Paul's message, or, or, or to consider. That's another way that that word can be translated. You know, most people probably just brushed Paul off, but not Lydia. The Lord moved in her heart to say, hey, listen to what he's saying. Now, don't just listen to it. Actually consider whether it might be true or not. That's how God was working in Lydia. She listened, considered what he had to say. It's simple. It's rational. It's moving. Makes sense. She's in. God works in different people in different ways. Now, compare that to the slave girl. Totally different experience here. Paul's annoyed. I mean, he's torqued. (laughs) God worked through the faults of Paul. 
God works in different ways, even through imperfect people. I mean, we saw it earlier when Paul and Barnabas got into a huge fight, red-faced, yelling at each other. They split ways. God worked through that. Now Paul's annoyed. He responds quickly. God works, but God is working to right wrongs. He's freeing this girl from the darkness. And we don't know what happened to this girl, but she was freed from this demon. We don't know if this girl believed in Jesus. We, we, Luke doesn't really tell us. What he's telling us is, look how different this is from the very previous person Paul talked to. We have Lydia, and now who God just stirred in her heart. And now we have this slave girl who through a miracle, God is working. God works in different people in different ways. Look at the jailer. Total different thing again. Watch how God works in his life through this point of crisis. We mentioned earlier that Paul and Silas got arrested and thrown into the inner cell. The jailer locks them. Watch what happens now as the story continues. They're sitting in this jail. They're singing, which, by the way, uh, music is so important to the Christian faith. Like early on, you you just see Christians mitigated their suffering through song. It was one of the ways they did this. Paul and Silas, it says, he probably had them locked in stocks, at least in their feet. So he's serious. The jailer's serious not about not letting these guys get away. Uh, you and I can't imagine sitting in a cold, damp inner cell, uh, probably cold and our feet locked so we couldn't move them. Um, Paul and Silas probably weren't sleeping because they couldn't sleep. It was probably so uncomfortable. I mean, I just think about laying with my feet locked in stocks, trying to get comfortable that way. Probably couldn't. I mean, this was some sort of physical suffering, and, and they're singing to mitigate that. They're finding joy in the midst of this. Paul and Silas were probably not being detained until a trial could happen. Paul and Silas were probably being punished. There are other prisoners that are listening to them sing this song, and as they're singing this song, finding joy in the midst of their pain, Choosing to see the goodness of God, all of a sudden an earthquake starts rumbling. That shakes the whole prison. It's a miracle that the roof doesn't collapse on them because, you know, this is not San Francisco, right? This is not, you know, earthquake approved buildings here. I mean, this is ancient world buildings. It's a miracle that the roof doesn't fall in. The ground shakes, the doors come open, the chains come loose, which is even more of a miracle. And when the jailer realizes this, he reaches a point of crisis. Why? Because, remember when I was talking about the culture of shame he lived in? What would happen if the, if, the, if the prisoners escaped? He would be crucified, or executed for this, rather. He would be executed. The shame had come down on him. He had let the, these prisoners had escaped on his watch. He was just sure of it. And so he draws his sword in a point of crisis. I mean, talk about a point of crisis. He's got his sword turned, and he's ready to fall on it. And what happens Paul hears about this and he shouts out, stop, don't do it. We're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? N.T. Wright paraphrases this. Because sometimes we have a hard time getting our head around that question, what must I do to be saved? Uh, oftentimes we read that and goes, oh, he wants to know how to get to heaven. He wants to know how to go to heaven. Well, that's convenient. But that's not what the jailer's really asking for. He's saying, listen, I'm in a mess here. 
Like, this is a bad deal. And shame has been brought down on me. N.T. Wright says, listen, I, he paraphrases this. I'm in a mess of guilt and shame. How can I get out of this? I think there's some truth to this. The jailer wants to know most certainly. I heard you say this. I heard this girl. I heard everyone talking that you know the way of salvation. Now, get me out of this mess that I'm in. Show me the truth about Jesus that you've been talking about. What do I do? Because I want him not only to rescue me from my sin, but from my shame, this mess I'm in. Yes, I want to be saved. Yes, surely, if the reward is heaven, I'm into this. But certainly he wants to know, how can I get out? I've created a mess. This is awful. And of course the answer is that Jesus took our sin and our shame. And so Paul says in 31, believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. You and your household. In other words, this, uh, this offer of salvation is good for everybody in your household. And so they, li- they all listened to him. And they all decided Jesus is it. And they were baptized that very day. Look how different this is. A whole family comes to faith as a result of this. Because God works in different people in different ways. You know, for some people, God works through a still, small voice, doesn't he? You know, some of you hear God that way. Here's this still, small voice speaking to you. For some of you, it's very different. It's through, he's shouting at you through the craziness of life circumstances. For some, God speaks and calls and moves before they ever know Jesus by just Sometimes they, they dig a hole so deep for themselves, God says, if you want to dig a hole that deep, I'll let you go. Sometimes God speaks that way. Uh, on a side note, one of the sometimes the frustrating things that I hear people say, and I say it sometimes too, is when we're talking about someone whose life is just a mess and they're still resisting Jesus, we'll say, well, sometimes God has to take people to the bottom before they're willing to, see, to look up and see their need for him. But you know what? That's not always true. Sometimes people get to the bottom and they're sitting at the bottom and they go, the last thing I'm going to do is ask God for help. It's just not a universal truth. Sometimes it happens that way. God works in different people in different ways. So we have to be aware of not only how God is working in our life, but how God is working in other people's lives. We have to keep our eyes open because the different God works in different people in different ways. There's some commonality here. In Lydia, God opened her heart to consider. In the jailer, God was moving through an earthquake and through the miraculous, through the slave girl that way. The commonality is that God is working. But he works in different people in different ways. And there's this great mixing of divine action and human responsibility here. I, I love that verse in that when he speaks to back when the text, when he says that to Lydia, that simple verse where he, he says, uh, when they sat down and began to speak to her, the Lord opened her heart to consider Paul's message. You see, the truth is God is working. He's moving. Paul works for the kingdom. God works in hearts for the kingdom. God opens hearts. People are responsible to respond. There's this dual action going on. As people work for God's kingdom, God is working for his kingdom in hearts because God works in different people in different ways. Last thing I want to tell you this morning is that he works in different people in different ways through people who will never be the same. A decade earlier, the Apostle Paul 
was a Pharisee of Pharisees persecuting the church. He was the Jew of Jews. He was going to root out these Christians and kill them. And there is no way a decade earlier that this Paul would have been talking to a Gentile woman, even if she was a God-fearer, or a slave girl. I don't have the time of day for that. Or a Gentile Roman jailer. No, thanks. I don't even need to have a conversation with that. In fact, I'll be better off if I didn't. Don't you love how as Paul interacts with the gospel, the gospel changes him. And this is why it's so important to talk about the gospel often. Sometimes you all get sick of it, probably. You're like, seriously, Dave, the gospel again? Like, really? You're going to talk again about how we're sinful and how we have guilt and shame and you know, you're going to talk about the incarnation again and, and the substitutionary death of Jesus and how Jesus rose and ascended on high and poured out his spirit amongst us again. And you're going to call me to respond again. And you're, Dave, stop it. I'm so tired of hearing this. But we can never grow too tired of the gospel because the gospel changes us. This different God works in different people in different ways. Why? Why does he do this? He does this because in as much as he loves all these people, he wants to change you and I as well. They change us. The gospel gets a hold of our hearts. In the text, that after the jailer comes to faith, he puts Paul and Silas up for the night. And in the morning, they come and let him go. And then Paul gets really ornery. <laughs> Look at verse 37. Look what happens next. This is a massive shift for Paul. Um, at verse 37... They come to let him go, and Paul says to the officials, wait a minute, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, they threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. This is the first time that Paul had notified them that he was a Roman citizen, and a Roman citizen was important. Not everyone got to be Roman citizens. It wasn't easy to be a Roman citizen. And a Roman citizen had special rights. And in fact, if the Roman authorities found out that these authorities had taken a Roman citizen and not given him a trial and beat him improperly, they were going to be in deep trouble. What Paul is doing here is he's recognizing it's time for a tactic change. If the gospel is going to go forward, the gospel needs a little bit of breathing room and freedom right now. And so I... I'm going to bring, wreak havoc on these guys. They have to come down here and in shame face me, a Roman citizen, so that they take their foot off the gas of persecution on the church and give us a little breathing room to talk about the gospel. God is now providing in a different way for the gospel to go forward. The different God works in different people in different ways through a people who will never be the same. As I wrap up, I want to acknowledge today that different is hard. Different is just hard sometimes. God wants to change you and the world around you, and that means that we need to be willing to work and let Him work in us in ways that are different. And so sometimes in a world where we're just doing the same thing, different is hard. Different is sometimes hard. Sometimes we don't want to consider the weightiness of the kingdom work. Sometimes we just want a vacation, don't we? We're like, Dave, you don't understand. Uh, you know, I, I work a bazillion hours a week. I'm going 100 miles an hour. I do the same thing week in and week out, and I'm going. I don't really have time to do any kingdom work. And what I'd say to you is, 
the difference here is that the kingdom work is all around you. We're so accustomed to same that sometimes we don't open our eyes and say, what's God doing different around me? Who's he working in different? Now, I want, I don't want to reduce this to a simple, maybe it's time for a life change message. That would miss the entire point. This is not about quit your job and find a new job or find some new friends. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about keeping our eyes open to look into someone's life who's different, who I never maybe would have looked before. So this week, will you look around you? Will you see someone who's so vastly different from you and look and say, how's God working in their life in a way that's different than mine? It's a kindness question. Do you need to defend someone? It might be a point, someone who might be at a point of crisis like the jailer and you say, I can step in because I know Jesus and his kingdom's breaking through and he wants to forgive and he wants to restore. Will you open your eyes and look to someone who is different than you and see how God is working in a different way. And if you do, you'll never be the same. Let's pray. God, we come to you humbled that you would have come to us. God, that you who are different than us would have come to us in Jesus, taken our guilt, taken our shame upon yourself. And you would have done that for us. Help us to keep our eyes open to how you're doing this in others' lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen.